I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PLM. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson. Sam, how you doing, man? Doing good, though my headset is dying, so I've got a new one on the way. We'll have to hope it uh, survives. Is it, it's not just like a battery issue? Like what, what's dying about it? The, either uh, this, this connection here is exposed wires at this point, so it's not okay. the most stable thing in the world. Understood. I have an. I think I have the first ever iPad, and uh, that thing is is hanging by a thread mm. over ten years. I think I've had that thing. This Has thing's that even been around for ten it's, years. I mean, this is this thing dates back to when we were doing these podcasts like remotely the first time around. You know, before it was enforced by COVID, it was just enforced yeah, yeah. by the fact that none of us lived in the same place. And what I discovered is that this headset is like one of the best you can get in terms of audio quality. Like it's way better than these sort of fancy, you know, hundred, multiple hundred dollar headsets that some people are using or those, you know, my giant Yeti microphones or whatever. But it comes at the cost of the fact that it appears to be made out of the like cheapest hunks of crap possible. And they break, they last like six months and then break. So there's like the fourth one of these I've had. Like they're great, they just don't last very long. Well, hope you make it through the show. All right, that's all we're trying to get here. If not, you have to do a lot of vamping later on solo. I've done it before, especially you know QB centric. I'll just you know talk about all the quarterbacks one by one. All right, let's get into it. The, The title of this is "What Makes a Great Quarterback," and there's a lot that you could potentially discuss there. But I think more specifically, something that you and I were working on a little bit on the side, and then you wrote over at pff.com um, it was essentially how well do quarterbacks play in pass heavy games now uh, there's a lot to unpack here uh, are there any other things you want to discuss about this great quarterback stuff or do you want to just discuss specifically what we're getting into here as far as your article yeah well let's start with the article definitely um, I mean this this kind of stems from what we were talking about before in the podcast that this idea of, you know, Russell Wilson is phenomenal, but his the Seahawks don't let him cook the same way the, the Chiefs let Patrick Mahomes cook. And, you know, they've been specifically trying to take the ball out of his hands as much as humanly possible um, compared with, you know, other teams that have great quarterbacks actually lean on them more. And we were sort of talking about what is there actually merit to that? Like what happens when he does have to pass? a decent amount and what happens um, when they are forced to sort of lean on Russell Wilson more than just let him be the facilitator in that offense. And, you know, it's, it's certainly not bad. Like he's better than average when he has to pass. We looked at these, these games where we set this uh, cutoff of 40 dropbacks. 
So 40 dropbacks is a pass-heavy game in, in the NFL. So what happens in those games where any quarterback drops back 40-plus times? And Wilson certainly does well. And as I, I told you before, I think when you if you look at just the last two years, he's better than like he's better than average. He's better than good. He goes up to being one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. But at that point, the sample size gets really fragile. It gets to like 12 games or whatever it is. So it becomes, you know, the difference between best in the league and above average is like one game. Yeah. So when we discuss these, you know, high volume games, there's definitely some caveats here, right? There's because for the most football is a cause and effect game. So a lot of times you're behind, so you're forced to throw more. So there's a lot of games in here. You looked at games with 40 plus dropbacks. Um, we've looked at data before with, you know, 50 plus dropbacks and all that stuff. And usually when you get to that point, it's because you're chasing, you're from behind or whatever it is. But when you do see this list, it does separate a lot of the best quarterbacks. And I think with quarterback analysis, it's not always like a binary yes or no. And it's not always just like a great and then everything else. We're, we're kind of forced to discuss it in those terms a lot of the times. It's like, do you have a quarterback or do you, do you don't? Do you have one of the top eight or do you have one of the, you know, the middle tier? But I think especially like within that middle tier, I think that's where you start to separate guys. So if we were saying that the top tier of quarterback during the last 20 years, right, I think it's very clearly Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, right? I mean, th- this is those guys are good at pretty much any number that you throw out there. Advanced, uh, regular, passer rating, doesn't even matter. Like, those guys are there. So almost whichever way you slice the numbers, those guys are sitting near the top. But I do think the middle class of quarter. So then there's like a second tier of quarterbacks where they're in most of those numbers, right? And Russell Wilson's probably one of those over the course of his career. Now he's up in that top tier, most likely for the, for the next few years. Right. But the middle tier gets separated. And that's where I think in your story, discussing Dak Prescott, discussing guys like Eli Manning and what actually makes those guys different, because you can lump them all together and say, Hey, there's a middle tier quarterback, but they all have different styles attached to them in different ways that, you know, strengths and weaknesses that you can actually work around. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that that top group of the Brady, Rogers, Peyton Manning, and Drew Brees is the top four quarterbacks when it comes to essentially the, the percentage of games, the percentage of high volume passing games where they grade well. So we set various different thresholds, 75, PFF grade of 75 plus, 80 plus, 85 plus, 90 plus. And, you know, 80 plus, I think is a good starting point, right? If you grade above 80 in a game, you played well. And that when high volume games is not easy to grade well in for a quarterback, it's tougher. So you set that 80 plus threshold. That's your top four quarterbacks, Brady, Rogers, Peyton Manning, and Drew Brees. And now Patrick Mahomes is climbing into that group as well based off sample size, right? Like he's, he's at 26 of those games. Tom Brady's at 135. Drew Brees at 148 in their careers. They've, they've been there a ton. Um, but it's it's interesting that it immediately separates you into the group that everybody would have based off the eye test, based off any number you want to pull out. It's that group and then Patrick Mahomes pulling his way into there right off the bat in his NFL career. The interesting thing about yeah, – I always use Brady as an example, though. I mean, the the thing that has made uh, Belichick special as a coach is is obviously his willing willingness to adjust, right? And then Brady's been able to execute it, right? So Brady wins the Super Bowl. They win the Super Bowl in 2001. 
they came out in the first game of 2002 against the Steelers. And I think they threw the ball like 22 straight times or something like that. I mean, that was in an era where established the run, run play action. That was in an era where that was, was still a thing, right? And everybody believed in it. And the Patriots were a team that said, well, if you have a great run defense and I have a quarterback who makes good decisions, like I could actually put the ball in his hands 25 out of the first 26 plays. Like I can actually do that. So while most of these, here's why I think Brady does kind of separate himself from others in general is like, he's one of the quarterbacks that you just should build that entire game plan around and say, Hey, go throw, go throw the ball 30 times to start the game. And we're not going to run the ball. And I trust you. And it's not just, he's not picking up these games while chasing a lot of it's the game plan. They've had many games where he threw the ball 50 times and they handed it off six, right? Just because they game planned around um, what he was able to do, but you're right. Like all the top guys uh, are there Brady number one with the 80 plus games, 85 plus games, 90 plus games. Like they um, clearly separate themselves. I do find it fascinating. Then you get into like that next tier. Ben Roethlisberger is really high. Matt Ryan's really high. Matt Schaub out of nowhere is high. And that's the first name that I thought was really interesting because he does feel like the guy that's been really protected by a Kyle Shanahan system, a run game play action and all that stuff. But when he's been put into these situations, he actually performed well, even though his sample is much smaller than some of those top tier guys. I, yeah. I think people forget that he was legitimately good for a while. And that's really offense. good. Now, okay. It it's a favorable situation, but it's no different to Kirk cousins last year or, you know, any of the other quarterbacks that have been in the Shanahan style of system, like it's a beneficial system, but that doesn't mean they weren't good at doing it. I mean, John Elway was in a beneficial system for the back end of his career and he was good at it. Like, it's not like it doesn't take away from the fact that he was a really good quarterback. Like Matt Schaub for a while was in one of the most quarterback friendly systems in the NFL between the scheme and between having Andre Johnson to throw to. But he did, like, he took advantage of it. He played really well within those confines. And I think people probably forget that because we, all we think about is the way it, it really nosedived towards the end and he became the sort of human pick six machine towards the back end of his career. Um, but, like, Matt Schaub was good for a while. The other name somewhere near the top that I think is really interesting is Tyrod Taylor because he's been, again, one of the, like, it's a, a low sample size for him, right? We're talking 17 of these games in total. Um, and because he's been massively protected, like they've always, the same way that Russell Wilson, they've tried to kind of keep him out of those situations. But when he's been forced into it, he's done well. Like, and across the board, like good, good percentages in terms of 75, 80, 85, 90 plus grades even. Like when... Tyra Taylor has been forced to pass a lot. He's actually still performed pretty well, which becomes interesting because in theory, he's the starter for the Chargers now. Now, who knows if that lasts beyond like three games before Justin Herbert comes in. But we think of this idea of, you know, Tyra Taylor is a starter for the Chargers. They go back to this run heavy system. It starts looking like the Bills offense from a few years ago. But what if you actually open it up and let Tyra Taylor pass a little bit more? Like maybe... Maybe he's actually been held back by the protection they tried to give him. Uh, so I'm just going to go back to the 2016 season. That was uh, one of, you know, Tyrod had good grades in 15, 16, and 17, right? And his, uh, his on-field production was the best in 2015. Deep ball was fantastic. It really took a nosedive um, kind of out of nowhere in 16 and 17. But in 2016, the game that made me think about this more with Tyrod. He had back-to-back -back weeks, one against New England, where he dropped back 43 times and was pretty terrible. Not great. You know, 4.8 yards per attempt. 
But then they go to Seattle on Monday night football, and he had to go head-to-head with Seattle and Russell Wilson. It was one of the best games of his career, 85.6 grade, 46 dropbacks. Statistics were pretty good, but as far as like throw-for-throw efficiency, Tyrod was great. They just kind of stalled out in the red zone, if I remember. It was a rare game because Tyrod had many games where he dropped back 25 times, 28 times, 30 times. He was a very well protected quarterback. And I think that's the perception around him is that you couldn't uh, put the ball in his hands. Right. I mean, that is, so when we talk about mid tier quarterbacks, right. Um, I know Eric Eager's done some really good work on this. Cause we talked about it through the years, the mid tier quarterbacks can kind of get separated into like so many different categories, but one way to do it is the safe category, the Alex Smithy categories, the Tyrod Taylor categories. They don't throw a ton of turnovers. They're not going to really you know, move the, move the ball a ton compared to their other, the other, you know, their peers. And then you have the aggressive guys, the Jameis Winston's of the world, um, Carson Wentz a little bit, you know, guys that can make plays over and over and over again, but also miss a ton of throws and and all that stuff. But I think the other way that you kind of separate those guys, are there guys that you truly want to start the game and put the ball in their hands 40 times? Like, do you actually want to create the game plan to give them 40 opportunities to drop back? Or if you only give them 25, are they really good at the 25, but bridging the gap from 25 to 40 is a huge mistake. I think if you ask me about Tyrod, I would say he's the 25 guy, but you know, he's had a few of these high volume games that have been good. Yeah. It's probably, so it's probably worth rewinding a little bit and stating why this is like an actual thing. So I I think there are definitely quarterbacks in the NFL where you can, they can be efficient, um, they can be efficient quarterbacks and lead your offense within a certain scheme and within a certain game plan and a flow and all these kinds of things based off like a limited number of plays they have to orchestrate and make themselves. Um, and the idea being that the more plays, the more throws, the more dropbacks, the more passing plays in a game, the more you are leaning on a quarterback to consistently deliver and make the right decision and you know play well essentially over a, a period of time and the more you ask them to do that the harder it is um and the first thing is i think these numbers across the board bear that out right there is the only quarterback since pff has been measuring with any number any decent number of these things that has a pff grade above 75 more than 50 percent of these high volume games is mahomes and he's only had 26 of them right so Across the board, the logic holds up that the more you put the ball in the quarterback's hands over the course of a game, the harder it is for them to play well. Tom Brady's at 48% of those games. That's an insanely high number. Rogers, 47%. Uh, Manning, 45%. Breeze, 43%. Deshaun Watson at 40 Those are the only quarterbacks about 40%. So it's really hard to put the ball in these hands, guys, a ton and still see them grade well. So at that point, it does start to immediately separate out the guys that can consistently do this time and time again and actually perform well. And it also starts to weed out the guys that might not be be able to do it at all. And to an exert to a certain extent are therefore products of the game flow and the environment and the scheme and the various other things that go into protecting these guys. And if you actually end up in a situation where you need to abandon all those things and trust your quarterback to bring you back, and this is, you know, the Joe Montana myth, right? It's like, oh, and the the reason the Vikings bring in Kirk Cousins, right? It's, all right, what happens if we find ourselves in a game, we're down 14 points, 
And suddenly the game plan has gone out the window and we need to trust the quarterback to start executing over and over again. This, I think, does a pretty good job of, A, finding those quarterbacks that you can lean on, and B, identifying ones you can't. Like, if you look at the bottom of the list, it's a bunch of crappy quarterbacks. Like, And one other name that we need to discuss. Yeah, so we'll get to that. A, it's a bunch of crappy quarterbacks. Like, you know, the the sort of backups forced into starting action for a while, the Kyle Ortons, the Sean Hills, Jacoby Brissett, Derek Anderson, Trevor Simeon. You know, then you get the failed quarterbacks like the Marcus Mariotas, the Josh Freemans, the Kevin Cobbs, Christian Ponders. Um, it also, interestingly, shows up all the young quarterbacks. So Kyla Murray showed a lot last year, but he's one for 10 on these games. Daniel Jones, one for 11. Um, a lot of the sort of very young quarterbacks do not show well in this as well. And then there's your name, Dak Prescott. Dak, Dak Prescott. Is there. Yeah, at 28 of these games um, and has four that have graded above 75 and 75 is not that high a threshold. You put it to 80. He's had one. He's one for 28. By comparison, Patrick Mahomes is uh, for 80 plus. He's seven of 26 for 75 plus. He's 14 of 26. So you're talking about 50 percent or 50 plus percent. For the 75 threshold, Dak's, uh, Dak is 4 of 26. Like, that is abysmal. I think you saw this early in his career as well. 2016, from a grading standpoint, was Dak's best season. It was also the year, uh, you know, he, he kind of came out of nowhere. He only had, four, for perspective, he had 497 attempts. Um, or say, his first two years, 555 dropbacks. Last year, he had almost 100 more than that right so he was more well protected that year and this is where I think a lot of the perception of needing Zeke Elliott and needing a run game so like let's let's back up to 2016 here Dallas wins a ton of games they go to the playoffs Zeke is the number four overall pick Dak is a fourth rounder Zeke is awesome the run game's awesome the O-line's awesome just as it's been for the most part you know since Dak has taken over a quarterback and Dak is extremely efficient, 26 touchdowns, five interceptions, um, including the playoff game. I mean, fantastic. Passer ratings, 104.8. But he only had this handful of games with 40-plus attempts. And his he had two good games in there, but he had some duds in there, mostly against the division. Um, but like Philadelphia, 39.8 grade, and against the Giants, a 32.2 grade, weeks eight, week, in, in weeks 14. So those were like right in the middle of the season where Dak – you know, he's well-protected, well-protected. It's a play-action game. You don't have to do too much. He had he had more games with less than 30 dropbacks than he had games with more than 40. So less than 30. You know, if you drop back only 29 times, 28, 27, like that's not asking your quarterback to do too much. And he graded really well in a lot of those games. And I guess the point is a lot of that stuff's held up throughout Dak's career. Now that he heads into year five with the franchise tag on him, and this perception that he's had his best success, which isn't really right, but he's had his best success when the run game's been right. The numbers don't necessarily back that up, but the numbers of putting the ball in Dak's hands and saying, go win the game for me with 40 to 45 dropbacks, that hasn't happened for the majority of his career. He has performed among the worst quarterbacks in the league in that situation. And I like Dak. I think he's a very good quarterback. But when we talk about separating the middle tier, that's where he is. This is one of those places 
where he's not great. Yeah, and it's not so it's it's def, that would be hugely concerning for me if I'm locked in these negotiations with Dak Prescott's camp and trying to um figure out how many of the many many millions he wants you're going to want to give him, right? Like at some point this is relevant. At some point this idea of well what happens when things go to hell and we have to lean on you. Like you might look like a top five quarterback, given the offense we built around you, this great offensive line, Zeke Elliott in the backfield, CD lamb coming into a group that already has Mari Cooper and Michael Gallup. Like you could easily look like a top five quarterback next year, but what happens if we win the division, we get to the playoffs and you know, we see a replay of that Tennessee Baltimore game, right? Where suddenly you're in a hole and the game plan goes out the window and you need to become the reason we come back is Dak Prescott capable of doing that? These numbers say it's not a high percentage play. And actually they identify, I mean, they sort of pull the same thing for a lot of these quarterbacks that traditionally thrive in run heavy systems. Um, so Colin Kaepernick also has a similar profile. I just pulled Lamar Jackson's numbers cause he didn't, he doesn't have enough of these games to, to qualify from the threshold we set. But Lamar that's had six high-volume passing games in his career. These include playoffs, by the way, all these numbers. Um, six high-volume games. He's had two that are above 70 in PFF grade and one that is, that's above 80. So, what, 33%? Above 70 or 75? Uh, or 75 cut off? 75 as well. Yeah. 75. So, yeah, both. Um, Very small sample there. But, yeah, not, not a bad start. Right. So, he's... Not not in, he's not in a terrible place, um, but Colin Kaepernick, Dak Prescott. There's a lot of these sort of quarterbacks that you think of as being sheltered and in some way a part of their run-heavy systems. Do not go. Do not turn well. Turn out well when they're forced to suddenly pass a ton. Michael Vick is in the same situation. Let me tell you the name I, I, that I that I just sent to you yesterday, and you're like, oh, maybe maybe that's a thing. The other name that's low on here that stood out to me was David Garrard. Mm-hmm. And I know you sometimes when you talk about players, he last played in 2010. Um, but people might forget David Garrard. He's the guy that I use a lot as an example of just a very efficient quarterback. They had a run first attack in Jacksonville. They had Fred Taylor and they had Maurice Jones drew. They ran a lot of vertical concepts off of play action. And then David Garrard, they won a lot of games with him. They had some really good seasons with him because he generally took care of the ball. And he would pick up two, three, four first downs with his legs when he needed to, right? So he was just an efficient quarterback. But according to these numbers, you know, intuitively, you would never say, hey, David Garrard, we're going we're gonna to drop back 45 times today, and you're the guy. You're going to carry us. And these numbers back that up. He's kind of in that Dak range near the bottom, only 16%. He's actually better than Dak, but 16% of his games with 40-plus dropbacks, um, he graded at 75-plus. So that's well near the bottom. And I think that might be a good proxy for what Dak is throughout his career. And that's not a knock unless you really understand how much I do believe David Garrard's a good quarterback where the situation around him, if it's good, he could be an efficient QB. And it, just, it he always had a decent situation around him. So that's the thing, right? David Garrard, it's actually a really fascinating comp because David Garrard is also a fourth round draft pick. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the difference in perception, Right immediately Dak Prescott wins that job, like in camp and preseason, and then he's a starting quarterback. And so the story is, wow, we just got the evaluation wrong. Like he wasn't a fourth round guy. He's way better than that. He's now the quarterback of the future. Garrard, 
takes a while to win the starting job because they already had Byron Leftwich, right? So yeah. it takes Gerard a few years to eventually be give, be given the job, be a proven better player. And Gerard was good. Like yes. he was a pretty good player for an extended period of time, but had a lot of the same limitations or, you know, he was never going to be this Peyton Manning type quarterback, which is what everybody's looking for. So eventually at some point we started to focus too much on what Gerard couldn't do and not as much on what Gerard could do. But the difference in perception between like the guy that just immediately you were like, all right, we screwed that up versus it took him a while to win the starting job. And so ultimately he's only a fourth round pick. So we're going to do better. And we get Blaine Gabbard eventually. Right. But, like I, when you said that to me yesterday, I was like, honestly, Gerard or uh, Dak Prescott is David Gerard if his team believed in him from the outset. Right. Like that's basically what you're talking about, which is to say a good quarterback, um, but one that will never be great. Like I don't think, I mean, it's it's not for certain, right? I would never say never, but if I was betting on it, I don't think Dak Prescott will ever become a great quarterback. And yet he will probably consistently be a good one throughout his career, which essentially is what you're dealing with, with, with David Garrard. It's just that his team was never bought into it the same way the Cowboys are invested into Dak Prescott now. Yeah. And Garrard was thrown to the way the Jaguars built their receiving core back then. It was all monsters. They, well, they, did, into, they did the Cam they, Newton thing before the, the Panthers <laughs> ever did it. Let's just assemble did. a team of six, five guys that he can't possibly miss. It was Reggie Williams who was kind of slow and couldn't separate. Matt Jones, who was 6'5". Williams was 6'4", had one good year. Matt Jones was 6'5", ran a 4'3'7", but was actually slow on the football field. Ernest Wilford was actually really good, but he actually he eventually moved to tight end because he was so slow. <laughs> right. And he was 6'4". Um, one year they had Dennis Northcutt as like the one little change of pace guy. I mean, Garrard, if you, we have five – here's what's interesting, Sam. We have uh, – let's say four years of full season data on David Garrard. One year he ranked seventh uh, in our rankings. Dak has one year where he ranked eighth. Uh, Garrard had one year where he ranked 12th. Last year, Dak ranked, I think it was 10th. It's like similar. And then Garrard had two years at like 14th and 18th. And Dak has a couple years at like 18th and 19th, right? So, I mean, if you just look at the year to year, there's a lot of similarities there. So I'm not trying to take anything away from Dak in general. I think he's a very good quarterback and he's in this situation where he could duplicate what he did last year because they've got the same playmakers. They still have a pretty decent offensive line and they add CD lamb to the mix and Kellamore and all that stuff. But the idea of when the game is all on the quarterback, the title of this podcast is what makes a great quarterback. If you go and give the ball to Brady Rogers, Manning breeze, and then even that second tier of Russell Wilson, big Ben, Matt Ryan, Tony Romo, all those guys rank near the top. In this metric of 40-plus dropbacks, 50-plus dropbacks, can you go win a game for me more than the average quarterback? It does truly separate the great ones. Is there anyone else on the list that you think is an interesting name that we should hit on? Yeah, Eli Manning and Phillip Rivers are the two names that, that really stand out, right? There is no doubt what we do here at PFF is we look at every snap, right? So we go back and we look at every snap and we come up with, you know, the evaluation of where these guys stand. Every snap of Phillip Rivers versus Eli Manning, there is no doubt that Phillip Rivers has been a different quarterback. Um, and I also think that there's no doubt if you were tiering quarterbacks, which I've mentioned a lot and which I like to do, Phillip Rivers is a second tier quarterback against his peers throughout the majority of his career. We I've mentioned the top tier 17 times already today. 
but Rivers is in that next tier of guys with the Matt Ryans of the world and Big Ben and all that stuff. And I, and Eli has like two years where he's looked like that guy. The rest, he is a mid-tier average quarterback. That's Eli Manning, who just shows up and doesn't get hurt and played a lot of football. But Eli Manning is awesome in these situations. He is right there with Matt Ryan, right there with Big Ben, with Schaub, who we mentioned, with Tony Romo. Like Eli has a lot of 75-plus games. He doesn't have a lot of elite games, but he's got those 75-plus games. He's played pretty well in these situations. Rivers has been terrible. I would not expect that. And again, I know a lot of both of those guys have lost a lot of games too, Eli and Rivers. A lot of these games are just like you're throwing prayers up late in the game and you get up to 40 dropbacks. Like I get it, but I was surprised at how high Eli was, how low Rivers was, and it kind of matches the perception when you look at their careers. Eli has the two Super Bowl runs. He's got a ton of comebacks and Rivers never really had those moments. He was consistently good. Had some down moments throughout his career, had some peaks, but he never had the great run. And I wonder how much, how telling this is. Yeah, and and I think the other name is the same is the the same draft year, right? Roethlisberger is actually the quarterback that really distances himself at the top. Like, yeah, for, and again for a guy that started his career as this hyper game manager, you know, complete passenger. 10 of 16 for like 160 yards and we'll win the game because of the ground game and the defense. Like he transitioned into this. Oh, he will cut it loose, throw 40 times all day and we'll still be good. Like Roethlisberger is the next quarterback down after that top four and Mahomes in terms of percentage of 80 plus graded games. When he cuts loose way above Eli massively ahead of rivers, like Roethlisberger became the guy where if you needed him to just start slinging it all day, he's the one you wanted to that trio a few other names that I find are really interesting. Andrew Luck, right? Andrew Luck had 68 of these games and only 10 of them graded above 80. But eight of those were 85 and four of those were 90. So we think of Andrew Luck as this captain comeback, like, oh, don't worry, it's never over because of like four games, right? <laughs> like right. Four games, yeah. he was able to air it out, go toe-to-toe with the best. And like, again, like this idea of, he got so much credit for putting out the fire that he started in the first place. Like that is Andrew Luck's career in a nutshell. Like he was incredibly able to execute this comeback, but so many times he was the reason that needed to be a comeback in the first place. So Luck's numbers overall kind of suck. Um, and then I love that. So he's eighth in elite games, so to speak, those 90 right. plus games, but only 19th in just being 75 or higher. So like when he's good, he's great, but it was, you know, less consistent than some of those other guys. Right. And 75, he's, he's 21st when it comes to those 80 plus games. 80 so plus, he's like, yep. he's down there with the Kerry Collins and the Jake DeLomes below Eli Mannings of the world. Um, and then Cam Newton is another one in the, in, in yeah. the boat of just not, not a lot of those big games. Right. We, again, we think of Cam Newton as, when he was at his best, he was able to execute those high volume games. But again, like all these quarterbacks that are at least an integral rely so much on an integral part of that run game. When you force them to the air, it doesn't go well. Like uh, Cam Newton, 56 of those games, only seven of which earned a grade above 80 and one that earned one above 85. So Cam Newton struggled when forced to the air more than he wanted to be. You know, Sam, I just, I can't wait to get, you know, to see football come back for everything to get back in order to see these numbers evolve and, and kind of track it. 
And I'm also excited for everybody to just reopen. You get back to normal. And then maybe somebody's going to see your balls for the first time in a few months. Of course. Don't ruin your first post-quarantine date with a ball fro, Sam. Not you, but no. our listeners. Would you show up to the first day of school without a haircut? Would you? Absolutely not. That's where Manscaped comes in. They're here to provide the best tools for your grooming experience. Huh. How's that? Yes. Good? Oh, beautiful. It's the Lawnmower 3.0, the best hygiene tool for the modern man. Because of the ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, your snags will be reduced while preparing yourself for post-quarantine life. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0 Essentials Kit. The Perfect Package 3.0 comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. It's water-resistant, cordless body trimmer, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag for you to use when you're done quarantining. Your favorite part of the Perfect Perfect Package 3.0, of course. Uh, then you get the Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver. It is a full package for your package. The anti-chafing ball deodorant, the Crop Preserver, ensures that your afternoon stroll does not end with your balls sticking to your leg, Sam. Hmm. <laughs> the copy just gets better and better. That is a constant uh, struggle. So when you put it all together, it's great. Subscribers to the Peak Hygiene, hygiene Plan We'll get a new replacement plan refill or blade refill. So you're going to get a, a blade sent to you essentially every three months. So your trimmer stays fresh and you got to treat yourself for making it through quarantine with the lawnmower 3.0. You get 20% off plus free shipping with the promo code PFF over at manscapes.com. That's 20% off free shipping promo codes PFF at manscaped.com. M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D, manscaped.com. Use the promo code PFF. You're going to be so excited to get out of quarantine with your perfect package 3.0. Mm-hmm. Hey, we yeah, did I mean, it. The first thing, the first thing when you get released into the world again is start is shave your nuts. What else would you be doing? Um, a few, this, this what slide, else do you want to say? <laughs> this, uh, this column is like endlessly fascinating to me. I can kind of just all the quarterbacks you can look at all day and there's little stories there yeah. because it's like a PFF contractual obligation. We need to mention that Josh Allen sucks in this metric, uh, 13 <laughs> right. games, one that was graded above 80. So that's not good. We uh, also have to mention Christian Hackenberg who has zero games with 40 mm, plus dropbacks at the NFL yes, level. True. So we got, don't worry though. He's going to be a pitcher now. If you got uh, Hackenberg and uh, Josh Allen bingo. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like, what a factory of sadness the Chicago Bears quarterback situation has been for years. Like, Kyle Orton is literally the worst quarterback in the league at this. 30 30 of these games, four above 75, none higher than that. Uh, Then you've got Trubisky, obviously. Trubisky and Grossman were basically equally inept at this. Um, Like, one good game, two good games between them on, like, 43, 43 high-volume games. That's just depressing. Uh, another thing that's, that jumped out at me, I was saying yesterday that like, I was surprised that Alex Smith had as many as 60 of these games throughout his career I know. Until, I, until I remembered that, like, obviously, he's the same draft class as Aaron Rodgers. Right. Rodgers sat for whatever, like, three years to start his career, plus missed time injured and a bunch of other, like, and Rodgers has as many. basically double the number of yeah. those games. So 119 for Rodgers versus 60 uh, for Alex Smith. And Smith was not good at them either. So, again, another way of, like, separating two dramatically different quarterbacks. How about the guys at the bottom who are over? 
who have never done it, who have never graded above 75. And there is, we've got Brock Osweiler, 0 for 20. Figures. We have Colt McCoy, 0 for 14. Yeah. Teddy Bridgewater, 0 for 13. Christian Ponder, and then Chad Pennington, we caught more of the tail end of Chad Pennington, 0 for 11. Yeah. Um, but those are all guys. How about that group? Ponder, Pennington, Bridgewater, Colt McCoy, and Brock Osweiler. Now, Osweiler is 6'7", but he's, his arm is not good. Like, he doesn't throw the ball fast. Those are all the guys that don't have great tools, average to below average NFL arms. I find that an interesting group. But offsetting that, just above them, is Josh Freeman and Blaine Gabbert. So it's not mm. just the guys without tools. The tall big armed guys like Blaine Gabbard and Josh Freeman, those guys can also be bad as well. And then Marcus Mariota. What about him? He is yeah. one for 23, only one game above 75 in these situations. And, you know, and I just, so all I'm going to say is Mariota has become way more of a guy. I think that is dependent on play action in the run game or, or just the threat of the run game way more than I expected coming out of Oregon. Um, and that, you know, that just hasn't gone the way I expected, I think, in his four years in the league, five years in the league. The name that really surprised me in terms of being terrible at this was Jay Cutler. Because um, if you think yeah. of Cutler as, I mean, volatile more than just awful. Um, but Cutler had 63 of these games, only five of which graded above 80. Like, I would have expected Cutler to have more you know, random games where he put it all together and you saw some really good from him, but apparently not. Yeah, I mean, Cutler, <laughs> Cutler is the most – think about Cutler's career, how many different offensive coordinators he had. So Cutler and Sam Bradford are similar in that they've had 900 offensive coordinators each. But for Cutler, the excuse was he's always got this cannon for an arm, so he'll figure it out. Yeah. Right. Bradford, like, hey, he's got a first, you know, first overall pedigree and he's accurate and he's this and that. And hopefully he kind of puts it together. But for Cutler, there was still this perception that because he throws the ball fast, well, Mike Martz will be the guy that gets it out of him. They throw down the field. Like it was just all these different solutions. Adam Gase will do it. And then he had like these little peaks. He was actually pretty good in the Shanahan system. And that's one thing I keep coming back to as well. All the Shanahan quarterbacks did well. You mentioned Shaw earlier, Kirk Cousins had some Shanahan time or McVay ties, you know, for early in his career, like all of those guys ended up pretty good. And they're known as being dependent on the run game and being guys that only want to throw the ball 30 times, but some of their guys have been pretty good in this. I, th I think that's because even when they're forced in these high volume games, the structure doesn't change. Right. So it's still, yeah. they still show you all the run stuff, right? It's not like they have a, they don't have a point where you flip the switch and it's like, Oh crap. Now we need to pass heavy. So we're going to be pure shotgun. There's going to be no run action. There's, you know, it's just going to, we're going to look like a run and shoot offense now. Like they, they still look the same way they always look. It's just that now instead of it ever being a run, it's going to be a pass 15 straight times. So I suspect that probably helps them. Um, at least that's my off the cuff educated guess as to why those guys do well in this particular metric. Um, so I, I've done a little bit of uh, research before using the dreaded win loss record. Right. Uh -oh. And, you know, I've used this example before. Like if you just look at Brady, if, if you just look at win loss record in a short, in a small sample size, obviously you're going to get deceived, uh, you know, pretty often. Right. But over time it gets you in the ballpark, right? The same reason, the same thing I said earlier, Brady, Breeze, Manning, like all those guys have good everything um, over time, including win loss record. 
Um, but if you go, I would be interested in your Steve Young and Joe Montana, and we might only be able to use, um, you know, raw stats or whatever it is. We don't have PFF grades on them. Do you have a feeling as to which one of those guys over time would be better at, uh, you know, 40 plus dropbacks and putting the ball in their hands? Um, I don't, so Montana strikes me as having a little bit of that Andrew Luck thing to him, which is there's a definite streak throughout his career of putting out bonfires that he was a part of starting in the first place. Like there's so many of these games where it's like, you know, Montana executes this improbable comeback, having thrown two first half interceptions, you know, right? like now that wasn't always the case. Like there's a lot of these games in uh, college, you know, Notre Dame, where he was basically thrown in there because the situation was no win. Right. So you can't lose because you're already losing. Um, so that wasn't his fault, but there was certainly a lot of those games for the 49ers where like he made a lot of bad plays and then suddenly is able to execute this incredible comeback. And I've kind of been thinking about this recently that I don't know what to do with that to an extent. Like if you have a guy that is consistently able to make these impressive comebacks, like how important is extremely high leverage situations if you're able to repeat them a bunch of times, or if they come at the most critical time, like Eli Manning in the Super Bowl and those kinds of things. Like ultimately the Super Bowl is the reason we're all playing this, right? Or we're all playing and analyzing this. Like that's what you're shooting for. So if if you're able to just get it done for a couple of key drives, like that's really important. Like that offsets an awful lot of like rank average or you know, just good regular season play that never gets you anywhere. Here's, here's what I think, right? I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts on, on, on all of this, but I, I don't think that clutch exists in sports the way a lot of fans or even sports writers think about it, right? Like, the, you're, when we make fun of sports writers for a second, Sam, like the classic sports writer who literally hasn't played since, like, Little League probably thinks back to Little League and is like, man, I was really nervous for my Little League games. That must be what players feel like. I mean, there's definitely, like, a few people who think that, Um well, the players, you know, under center shaken because, you know, the Super Bowl's on the line. Like, I, that's not how pro athletes really handle those situations. But I do think that, you know, over time, there's probably an ability to, to rise to the occasion. And I think the one thing that separates football from, say, baseball, like baseball studied this first. Baseball doesn't change in the ninth inning in a tie game, right? Football changes. Right. Because there's a different score. Like in, in baseball, if I'm if I'm a pitcher and I'm up two versus up one versus up six, like I'm still pitching. The only thing you might do is you might change your pitch selection, whatever. In football, the situation changes. Right. You're chasing a touchdown. You're chasing a field goal. You're chasing two touchdowns and you have to move quicker. Um, and nobody dictates that action more than the quarterback. So I do think that the quarterback it goes to the to the curve thing that we talked about before. I do think yeah. that the fact that Brady has been the best in all of those situations, like is meaningful over time. So, so if you're just trying to separate the greatest guys, but then if you're trying to say, what's the case for Eli Manning versus Phillip rivers versus say big Ben, it's that Eli hasn't been great throw for throw compared to those guys, not even close, but there's something to him able to lead comebacks and alter his style. Matthew Stafford has a little bit of that too. Like Matthew Stafford hasn't won a ton of games throughout his career. Hasn't won a ton of big games, but he's got some, he does have some fourth quarter magic that means something right over time, whether it's just, you know, when to be aggressive, you know how to, to play the game in that situation. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he he's got. I think he's more along the Andrew Luck style of things. Of he's got just so much talent that a, enough shots at that he's going to come good. I've heard Montana and Manning talk about it. I don't know if I've ever heard Brady talk about this in the same way, but all the data says he thinks about it the same way in terms of how he operates. Montana and, and Manning have both said that one of the things, one of the reasons most people don't do well at these big comeback situations um, is because when you're down, whatever it is, 17 with a couple minutes left, you have this feeling that we need to make a big play now. Like if we don't get it here, we're screwed. Whereas those guys are perfectly prepared to take 15 bites of this to get there. Right. So like the first play on a drive where you, you actually need to score, otherwise you've got real problems. Those guys are perfectly happy to take a five-yard pass to bring up second and five. Everyone else is shooting for the 17-yard pass that gives you a chunk play so we can start this thing moving in the right direction. I think there's something to understanding that, you know what, we can take what the defense gives us and start moving in the right, like start the momentum rolling in our direction and make our own lives easier when we actually get to the, the, the legitimate do or die situation. I think those guys are really good at that. And I think most players are not because they, they default towards that. Look, time's running out. We've got to make a big play. I'm, con- I'm looking to be more aggressive now. Whereas if anything, those guys are more conservative because they understand the defense is backing off to take away the more aggressive play. And they're just going to take what right. you give them all day long. That's where like when, when you just talk about the elite guys, Brady, Rogers, Manning, and Breeze and Mahomes, we expect to be in that mix. The knock on Rodgers, even though he's got some spectacular fourth quarter comebacks in there, some of which were Hail Marys, Rodgers hasn't been as good in those situations as Brady, Breeze, or Peyton. And then Peyton and Breeze just haven't really done it in the playoffs the way Brady has. I mean, that's where, like, when you're splitting hairs at the top among those guys, um, they have a decent sample size of of information, you know, that kind of splits those guys up a little bit in those situations. But again, I come down to that second and middle tier. I think style matters. And I think overall, if you do have, you know, if, if, if you have a guy that's not a top tier guy, like lean more aggressive, you've got to lean more aggressive and you got to lean to playing to your point to playing to the game situation and not worrying about throwing. Eli doesn't care about throwing an interception ever. Now that's an issue in the first quarter, but it's not an issue in the fourth quarter when you're down two touchdowns. And that's why if you're down two touchdowns and you have Eli Manning, it's like, all right, this guy's going to take some chances and make some plays. Also why I'm surprised Phillip Rivers was so bad at this uh, particular. One of my, uh, so Brett Favre, another player, obviously they didn't necessarily care if he threw an interception. Yeah. Um, I was watching this little round table discussion as part of my Montana young research thing. And it's Joe Montana, it's Brett Favre, it's a couple other players there, Drew Brees, I think it was one of them. I don't remember who the other guy was. And he was telling this story about how, you know, key situation, down by the goal line, Joe Montana throws an interception. He was like, normally he just jogged to the sideline, but he knew that, like, you know, crap, I'm in trouble now, right? So he kind of goes the long way around the, the field, back to the sideline where Bill Walsh is sort of sitting there, you know, giving it the, the chin scratching thing. And Bill Walsh looks at him and he says, uh, Joe, uh, what, what was that? What, what he goes, uh, I think they call that an interception coach. And he <laughs> says, uh, well, try not to let that happen again. Will you? And, uh, he goes, yeah, I'll do my very best coach. And then Brett Favre sitting next to him going, yeah, that didn't work out so good with me. 
No, it's great. I mean, it, I think that's the other thing those guys have too, is they have that ability to, to move. Nobody's perfect, right? Jordan missed game winning shots. You know, nobody's perfect in these situations. And that's the thing, right? It's just, are you giving your team a better chance than, than the next guy? Right. I mean, that's why, as you said, only, uh, grading over 80% or grading over 80 in these games, you know, 30% is elite. 15% is kind of expected below that. You know, you're not being great all the time in suboptimal situations. You're not leading every single comeback, but certain guys are just going to put you in better position to succeed. So I think that answers the question of the podcast, Sam, like what's, what makes a great quarterback? I think this is one of those situational pieces of the game where the best quarterbacks show well, right? You don't have to go in with a game plan and say, man, let's just try to throw the ball 20 times in this game. You can put it in the quarterback's hands and let them win the game. They can, in fourth quarter situations, make the comebacks by making those good decisions. I've heard Favre say, like, you know, don't as as aggressive as he was, he used to always say, just pick up first downs in the two minutes. Just pick up first downs. Right. And if you just do that over and over and over again, eventually you're going to have an opportunity to to make a big play for a touchdown. Right. Or, or get into field goal range or whatever it might be. Yeah. Good most, quarterbacks dictate that situation more than any other sport. Right. Like yeah, a basketball he, player could try to. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you, but like a basketball player could try to get his shot. But you're still like a little at the mercy of the defense. The quarterback dictates what he wants to do in these situations. And we obviously only got the, the ass end of Favre's career, but right. he did pretty well in this metric. And the times where Favre did make that critical boneheaded big mistake was when he was trying to do more than that. You know, when he right. didn't take what was on the table and tried to do something more. Even you think back to that 2009 NFC Championship game, the hideous interception to Sidney Rice. He had a first down on the table if he'd just been able to limp his way a few more yards to the right. Um so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really one of those things that I think this way of separating quarterbacks starts to identify a situ- situations where responsibility is more on the shoulders of the quarterback than it is the environment than they're, than they're playing within normally. And, you know, this is the problem with football generally, that it's so hard to distill out one specific guy from everything around him, whether it's running backs from all the things that influence them, whether it's quarterbacks from all the things that influence them. But this is a way that starts to pull you in that direction, that starts to say, all right, what happens when the regular game plan is out the window and you need to be the guy that brings us to success? And it's actually, you know, you we pull out a lot of these ways of looking at data and numbers and all those kind of things. And some of them are kind of interesting, but you're like, eh, this actually does a really good job of, like if you, if you had to just rank these quarterbacks based off nothing, like go into a dark room, don't have any data, just through your memory and through your instinct, what would your list look like? It honestly wouldn't look that far from the list that it, it spits out. Well, can I, let me, let me add one more. It's obviously like massive confirmation bias, by the way, but whatever. Oh, big time confirmation bias. Yeah, I mean, look, you're you're right. It does it it does get you in the ballpark. Here's one that doesn't make sense to me though: is going back to Dak in that class of 2016. Just looking at 75 plus graded games, uh, Jared Goff is really good. He's the highest of the the class of 2016 trio. I would think Carson Wentz would be better. At actually, not necessarily Carson Wentz at like a high volume game, but like Dak's skill set. 
like short, intermediate, doesn't go down the field a ton. Like Dak's skill set should be good at this. He's not the most accurate, but um, he can spread the ball around. But Dak's the worst. Goff is the best, and Carson Wentz is right in the middle among that class of 2016 trio. And they're also that interesting group where, like, Goff's been the best quarterback one year, and Dak's got two, and Wentz has one, and they all rotate, and it's it's situational. It depends on your supporting cast and what's going on at that given time. But they're actually, like, not close. Hmm. Goff is distinctly number one in, like of that group. Then it's Wentz, and then it's Dak. And that's one that I probably would not have guessed. Goff is fast becoming becoming one of the most interesting quarterbacks in the NFL because so I had another article on the site this week that was looking at um, how quarterbacks graded when they were forced beyond their first read. Right. And last season, Goff, I think, had the worst grade in the NFL when forced beyond his first read. But the season before that, he was really quite good in terms of percentage of plays when he progressed to a second read and beyond and actually doing relatively well when he was in, when he was asked to, and he's had one of the most like polar opposite uh, situations throughout his career, right? He's gone from disaster to one of the best situations in the NFL to somewhere in the middle and on the closer to the disaster end because of the offensive line So bad. last year. Um, so he's like all over the map when it comes to data points, like, massive percentage of his grade like he had a grade of 90 last year on first reads like top 10 on his first read stuff but anything beyond that was like a grade in the 40s had like a 40 plus point drop in grade on those plays and yet how much of that is well at that point he's got no time to work with because the offensive line like the system he's just generally right now when when you pull up you know one of these ways of looking at data you have no earthy idea where golf is going to rank. He could be anywhere. And that's fascinating to me. He is confusing too, because he's coming from an air raid system in college where he ran that system really well. He got to his second read and third read really well for an air raid system because, you know, that's, they do it differently than they do in the NFL and him being really good on the first reads kind of makes sense because of the way McVay calls a game, right? Like a lot of that system is like, I'm, you know, I'm guessing what the defense, I'm making an educated guess on what the defense is going to play. And if they're going to play cover three here, I've got a cover three beater. We're good. But if they play quarters, which they do a lot now, then maybe we're in trouble. Right. So it's like, okay, when the first reads there, McVeigh's really, really good. I mean, he's got play calls to beat that first read. So that part kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, that one, that one's like legit interesting seeing the various places where, where golf lands. So. Go check out Sam's article. It's over at pff.com. What's the title of this thing? Articles. Plural. Articles. Uh, NFL's first one, best quarterbacks in pass-heavy games. There you go. Uh, and the second one is ranking the NFL's best quarterbacks on first and second read throws. Cool. Check it out. So what makes a great quarterback? Being good hmm. in every possible situation. I was going to go back to the title, Sam. Being good all the time and not being a Chicago Bears quarterback, apparently. Yes, don't be a bear. So there you have it. It's the PFF NFL podcast for Thursday. We're going to be back on Monday. And then I believe next week we're going to drop another one of our uh, our lookbacks, our, our throwback podcasts, and uh, should be good. Working on it, working on it. We'll see if we get that far along down the path. In an ideal world, we'll drop that on the Thursday if we can get it done. I am away next week, but I think I should be able to uh, pop on a Monday and we'll do a podcast don't anyway. Don't tell people. It's a secret. Don't tell them I'm going anywhere. 
I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I'm like sitting here, just taking time off. That's the staycation. Like I just. Yeah. All right. I got got the kids here. Got to go. Kids. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. We'll tune in on Monday. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks for tuning in.